Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. Uh, we have coming to the end of another week uh, on the show. It's uh, Friday, March 5th. Yeah, I made a comment last week uh, that seems apropos again uh, today. I, I, it feels to me like we are living through this uh, very strange time-warping phenomenon that I would love to see physicists ought to take this on. During this pandemic, our days, from my point of view, seem endlessly long. They just go on and on and on. And yet the weeks and months kind of fly by. I mean, how, it's, this is March, which to me is kind of staggering. I'm not quite sure how that works. I mentioned this on the show last week. Amelia Brock said, boy, I know exactly what you're talking about. And a number of you wrote me and said the same thing. So uh, uh, we have come to the end of this week on the show with a lot more ahead in the weeks to come on Political Rewind. Uh, one of the things about this week is it began uh, Women's History Month. You know, we said on the show during Black History Month that we feel have sort of mixed feelings about special months being a, a, assigned for uh, uh, particular attention to groups of people, African-Americans, women. I mean, we should be talking about uh, uh, people all year round, not somehow uh, 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 putting them into a bucket of one month in which we celebrate and talk about who they are. Nevertheless, uh, it is important to be able to talk this month about the accomplishments of women, which we'll do in shows coming up, but also the challenges that women are facing right now, and that is certainly true uh, during this pandemic. And we have a wonderful panel today to talk about just what's happening to women in the workplace, women at home. Let me introduce them to you right now and um, get our conversation uh, started. We're joined today by Taifa Butler, who is the president and CEO of the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. Taifa, very happy to have you with us today. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. We are also joined by the president and CEO of uh, Working Mother Media, Suba Berry. Uh, Suba, where are you joining us from, by the way? I'm actually in Naples, Florida, but my home base is between New York and New Hope, Pennsylvania. So tell us just a little bit about the work that you do at Working Mother. You have a publication, and in fact, we're going to talk about some articles that we've seen from your publication, uh, but you also do work within the corporate world as well. Just help us understand a little about that. The Working Mother actually started over 40 years ago as this go-to entity uh, in the form of a magazine for working moms, uh, essentially giving them a lifeline to understand what are the challenges that women face and perhaps offer some solutions for them. It moved from there to becoming a bit of an advocacy organization because what we started doing was we started gathering data around the state of working moms. And we did that through looking at policies and programs that corporations offered to their working moms and began to realize that things like, uh, you know, basic maternity leave was something that was a privilege. It was not a given, a granted. And I'm gonna say to you, I have a daughter who's 32 in my first job, and I will not name where I took sick leave to have the baby. There was not a maternity leave policy because as a commodities trader, there were really no women there trading commodities and they didn't feel the need to create that policy. What we have evolved to becoming is an organization that has three areas of focus. It is working parents and caregivers and supporting their needs inside all the different corporations, large and small that employ them. The second one is women and women of color and their leadership journeys, creating those pathways for them to be able to advance. And the third one is really around other broader dimensions of diversity. And that could include 
race and ethnicity, sexual orientation, abilities, disabilities, generational differences, uh, religious differences, and the likes. Making sure that organizations, companies, large and small, know how to create inclusive work environments for them. Um, thank you for uh, helping us understand the organization a bit more. And a lot of what you work on, just like as a lot of what Taifa works on, are very pertinent to this conversation uh, today. We're also joined by State Representative Terry Anulowitz. Um Terry, thank you for joining. I know you're at a very busy time at the Capitol right now with crossover approaching, but it's really wonderful to have you uh, join us for this conversation. How are you holding up down there? It is crossover day eve, Bill, and that means I'm actually going <laughs> to. <laughs> so we are we are in um, survival mode. It is you know there there is so much policy that we're going to be talking about today at the Capitol, and then Monday, which is actually crossover day, which is of course when legislation has to either pass the House or the Senate in order to be considered by the other chamber. And so we've got a lot happening. We've got a budget we've got to do. Yeah. We've, we there are, there are several issues. Where I'm you know we'll. It's, it is busy, but I'm very glad to be here because this is a topic that is very important to me, especially just, you know, caregiving as an economic issue and the impact that this pandemic has had on women, I think, has really emphasized to all of us just how economic this issue is. I, I, I think that's – thank you for saying that. Um, you know, we've talked on this show over the months about how the coronavirus has um, made even clearer than it had been before – so many uh, disparities in uh, in our uh, American life uh, today. We've certainly talked a lot about the fact that the disease itself has had a hugely disparate impact on uh, uh, black and uh, Hispanic peoples in the country, and that that uh, emphasizes the disparities in health care in those communities. But but today we want to focus on just how it has impacted women. Uh, in in the workforce and in terms of the work they do in their homes. So let me set this up by reading uh, something from um, Fortune magazine. That uh, this this article came out at the beginning of this year, so it's already a couple months old, and the figures are slightly up, out of date, but they're good enough for the conversation. Uh, in this piece, Fortune says since last February. Women have lost a net 5.4 million jobs, or 55% of the more than 9.8 million, million U.S. jobs that have been lost, according to the National Women's Law Center. And it goes on. Meanwhile, the crippling burden of child care and remote learning has fallen much more heavily on mothers than on fathers, leading many women to stop working or even looking for work. Almost 2.1 million women have dropped out of the labor force entirely since February, meaning they're not even looking for employment. And finally, Fortune says, last month alone, meaning in this case December of 2020, 154,000 Black women left the labor force, the largest one-month drop uh, in, in, since the onset of the pandemic. Taifa, I, I think as a general broad statement, that starts us off pretty well in understanding how devastating this has been on uh, women and mothers. Yes? Absolutely. You know, GBPI has been looking at gender equity for the last four or five years. One of the things we recognize is if we are going to make sure that the state is viable economically, we have to look at women and their economic viability. As, as breadwinners, 62% of women are co-breadwinners in their homes, and we are nearly 50% of the workforce. So we aren't going to have any strategy around improving economic opportunity. It has to have a gender lens to it. And women right now in Georgia, of the jobs that pay poverty wages, they're 79% of the workers in those poverty wages. So we are, again, think about this in pandemic and how it impacted women and women of color who are overrepresented in those poverty jobs that typically are essential uh, jobs that shuttered uh, as soon as the economy shut down. That's why they've been so heavily devastated. And, and Suba, to add to this, uh, there was a, an article posted on your Working Mother website just yesterday 
I, I read it as I was writing a note to all of you. It popped up saying, here's what I want to talk about. Here's the headline. It's official. The pandemic has pushed 1.4 million moms out of the workforce. So when we talk about women in the workforce, we almost cannot talk about them without also talking about them being mothers, which has had an, an even bigger impact on their uh, uh, place in the workforce. What's interesting about this is we actually conducted three surveys of uh, female employed caregivers. And I want to use that word caregiving because in communities of color, the obligation is not just to their children. It is to extended families. It is to older members, relatives. It may not even be your immediate parents, but it could be extended relatives. So this notion of caregiving since the start of the pandemic has squarely hit communities of color dramatically differently, but it has been disparate for anybody who is a caregiver. So our three surveys were really interesting. It showed that at the beginning, the first study was in April of last year. And to see how both moms and dads were coping, we wanted to really look and see if things had become different because both of them were at home, where they were dual parent families. Nearly twice as many working moms, 81% as dads, 41% said that their ability to engage effectively at work had been negatively impacted. So already, right at the get-go, it was the moms that took the brunt of this. That's the first one to note. And it was around anxiety around managing home, family pressures, worrying about being able to balance their jobs, etc. All right. This, this anxiety has taken a huge toll. And then when we looked at September, we did another survey when kids started to go back to school. And by the time 865,000 women had left the U.S. workforce compared to 216,000 men. Mm -hmm. Case in point, I'm just pointing out at that point what it looked like. And out of that, you know, 324,000 were Latinx women, another 58,000 black women at that juncture. And when we looked at it, when the pressure of school was overlaid on top of it. Summer was done. Homeschooling needed to be done in a big way. Again, that burden came down on the women. And our latest survey, it says, the great divide, new work re reality hurts moms, how employers can change the trajectory. That was the most recent one. And what we learned was men, again, were saying, we're coping much better because they were being shown more consideration by their employers. It's almost like managers were saying to the men, oh boy, I know this is going to be really hard for you. How is your workload? How's that going on? And they didn't do that in the same proportion for women. So all in all, put all that together, and you can only Im imagine sort of the impact on what is happening with women. Terry, um, and of course, as, as I said at the very start, some of the things that we're talking about here uh, are not unique to the pandemic. They're not a result of the pandemic. The, the pandemic has exacerbated the situation dramatically uh, for Absolutely. women. But, but, but much of this has to do with the way women have been treated in the workplace uh, for decades. Um, and, and so this is just uh, magnified and, made it, and, and perhaps will make us more aware of the inequities that women have faced forever in terms of promotion. In terms of, as Suba says, an understanding about the fact they have dual responsibilities at home and in work and all the other ways in which women are affected, right? That's exactly right. You know, Suba mentioned having to save up sick leave for when, 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 you know, when she had a child 30 years ago. And in the year of our Lord 2020 in the state of Georgia was when we actually passed legislation <laughs> that would give state employees paid parental leave. That bill passed the House. It didn't pass the Senate last year. We, the House of Representatives passed that bill again uh, a couple of weeks ago, and that bill will, you know, is over in the Senate now. And even that bill would give three weeks of paid parental leave to state employees, to, and this includes teachers in the state of Georgia. Um, that's, you know, anyone who's had a child or known anyone who has had a child knows that even three weeks is, is not a lot. It's a start. It's a great starting point. But we we have never fully considered the the needs of mothers in the workplace and the needs of parents in the workplace. And like Suba mentioned also, caregiving is not just 
mothers and children. It is it is it is children and parents. It is grandparents and children. It is it is a wide range of people who are actually in the in these caregiving roles in our society. Yeah, and I would I would love I would love to add to that because I think if we look at the root causes before the pandemic of sort of how women were faring economically, if you look at systemic racism, particularly for women of color, and what our friends at NELP, uh, the National Employment Law Project, will tell you is occupational segregation is a huge cause of why women are over, overly represented in industries that typically are very low wage um, or their pay is even in some similar occupations not the same as men. So you have racism, you have occupational segregation, you have gender discrimination because women weren't seen to be valued in the workplace nor valued in the way of how they were paid. Add to that lack of job quality where, as uh, the representative said, no paid leave options. Typically, these jobs that women are overrepresented in don't have health access, health care access, no employer-based health care, uh, no fair scheduling, no retirement plan, so let alone talk about wealth building for women, um, in addition to pay disparity. So I think those compounded together have painted the picture of how women were before the pandemic. And again, it was not, it's not, the system is not doing well for women. Um, so uh, do you think, uh, uh, Terry, that uh, that for the most part, when we talk about the issue of how the, the pandemic is hitting women, that we almost always have to talk about it in the context of women who also are mothers, simply because that's, that it is that dual pressure, which we'll get into in more detail in terms of home life. Well, Suba, go ahead. Why don't you weigh in on that? Well, I will tell you that, that <laughs> what is happening is when you have uh, women in the workforce, and you have some who are parents and caregivers, and you have others who may not be, you know, they sometimes pick up the slack more on the work front. And one of the things that we asked was, you know, this notion of employers not, or managers specifically not showing consideration uh, about not just flexibility, but about workloads. There has been a huge loss of trust. And again, we have data to show there. It's 30% it's of Asian women, 34% of black women, 36% of Latinx women, and 36% of white women said, I now view my employer more positively because how, of the consideration they have shown me during the pandemic. Compare that to 71% of white men who say that they feel like their managers have really taken care of them. That is a chasm. That gap is huge. So really we need to think about the long-term implications if there isn't trust what is going to happen more turnover lack of promotion lack of mobility all of these things are going to impact women's careers going forward because you all know trust is at the foundation of building strong relationships and without trust nothing else moves terry yes yes no i i i think that's a that's very profound. And I really think that getting to the root of what we are talking about in these, in these relationships, these relationships between employers and employee, this relationship of trust. I mean, it is, I, I, I've, I've spoken to people who are in positions that, that they, they are in managerial positions. They employ women. I've said to them, I said, if you can take care of your, take care of your, the mothers you have working for you, Obviously, take care of all the parents, but if you can take care of the mothers in particular who are working for you right now during this pandemic, if you approach them with grace and empathy and understanding for the impossible situation that they are in right now. I mean, we've always talked about the, the double burden and the triple burden that women face in our society. You, know, you, have, you have your home that you need to take care of and your family you need to take care of. You have your, your professional obligations. And frankly, it's the desire and the, 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 the desire to have that professional fulfillment and that professional growth. And then you have the, the additional burdens that society puts on you outside of your family. And so to, to, have, to give women the, the space they need and the room they need to let them know that you, you trust them to be able to do their jobs, you trust and you understand that they are facing a lot of impossible situations every single day, I think that that will help move women further. But that doesn't make up the fact that we do now have this chasm in the workforce. And I don't know, I mean, I, 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 I think 
that will have a generational impact. And I would love to hear more from Sita about that too as our conversation continues. But I do think this will be a generational impact on women in the workforce. Um, Taifa, um, PwC, which is an organization, a business that uh, uh, is uh, uh, dedicated to, to um, working with uh, companies on, on how they deal with their employees, uh, issued a report that said this, um, COVID-19 is reversing the progress toward female economic empowerment. It said International Women's Day 2021 is an opportunity for everyone to celebrate the successes that women have achieved in the workplace. Um, and they point out that there are countries where there has been great progress. They say Iceland, Sweden uh, have done well, New Zealand. But they then go on to say the pace of improvement across all of these countries is very slow, and COVID-19 threatens to reverse the important gains that have been made over the last decade as the damage from the pandemic and unintended fallout from government response and, rec rec and recovery policies is disproportionately being felt by women. Amelia Brock uh, wanted me to take a look at that article. And again, I think it tells us something about how difficult it is for women right now. Absolutely. One of the things we looked at in our economic opportunity agenda for Georgia women was you know, pay parity, health care access, other policies like earned income tax credit that could really help bolster women or put by more dollars in their pocket. But the other piece of this you know, we were glad to see gains made and, you know, decrease in women living in poverty and the increase of entrepreneurship, right? How women are growing businesses in the state across the country, particularly in Georgia. But just now with this pandemic, we've seen entrepreneurs' doors close, not have access to capital or support with the PPP program, the Payment Protection Program, the, or I would say the disproportionate uh, lack of support that they've had um, in those kinds of small business uh, venture capital uh, efforts to really help them. So our fear is not only will women and the gains that they've made in terms of, you know, leaving poverty or growing out of poverty and, make, and being, you know, thrust into the middle class, that will have a setback. But now, looking at women entrepreneurs, uh, will they be able to maintain and sustain their economic growth and their businesses through this pandemic? And with uh, I will say this, knowing that the child care industry has been devastated um, and may not come back, there have been millions of slots across the country that have permanently been uh, removed. And then uh, for women to be overly represented in the child care industry, 90 percent of workers in child care are women. And so if those doors don't reopen, those are women's jobs, those are women's uh, employee, you know, entrepreneurship opportunities, as well as them being able to provide care for their kids, for them to even go back into late, to the labor force. So that's one industry in particular that is really significant for women, for working women, and, and families. Well, I wanted to actually add, I know that, that there is sort of enough dismal news, but I really want to call out some, some sort of positive bright sparks. Um, corporations have stepped in starting all the way, you know, in, in the, from the start of the pandemic, and especially after a George Floyd's murder and, and the racial reckoning that happened in this country, they have actually stepped up as it relates to making commitments, making pledges to support, you know, funding women's organizations, funding women's entrepreneurship and the like. So you take the likes of Bank of America and JP Morgan and other organizations, you've had money come out. One of the things we are working on is on the anniversary of George Floyd's murder, we are going to be releasing a report that is called Pledge to Progress. We are really looking at all the pledges that were made. We are holding, we are finding and, and investigating to see what has actually come out of it. Words are great, but they are cheap if there isn't action that follows it. And so we are going to actually measure and look at what companies have actually done. And, and start to build some kind of an accountability platform to say, it's great to make these pledges. How is this translating into action? So we're very proud of that. The other thing I will tell you that women's entrepreneurship, especially minority entrepreneurship, has taken a huge beating. And with, if the corporate sector steps up where government has not actually done its job, 
I think that there will be a powerful opportunity to have a private-public partnership in terms of helping drive this going forward. And I will tell you personally for me, there has never been a better moment in our country to have a national child care policy, to have a national paid leave policy, maternity leave policy. We are the only, among the only developed nations without that. And that is an embarrassment for us. So, okay, I thank you for adding that. There are these different layers of um, discrimination that seem to be at work here. Uh, What I mean by that is, number one, uh, women face discrimination and have for, as we've said, many, many decades in uh, the workforce. On top of that, African-American and Hispanic uh, women face a different prejudice or continuing prejudice, and mothers in the workplace, regardless of color, uh, face certain prejudices. I want to go back for a minute based on what you're saying about the way in which you want to deal uh, Suba at Working Mother with, with the uh, uh, year anniversary of the George Floyd uh, killing. I, I want to point out some figures that CNBC has about black women in the workplace that I found startling. Uh, Terry, I'll give you the first chance to address this, but everybody should jump in. Here's what CNBC uh, showed us. They looked uh, first at what frontline workers in the pandemic are paid. And here's what they found, that among physicians and surgeons, white men For every $63.41 that white doctors and surgeons make, black women in those professions make $46.59, a huge gap. Among registered nurses, for every $35 that white men make in that profession, black women make $29 in that profession. Elementary and middle school teachers, white men, 3375, black women, 2681. Here's where it's really strange, Terry. Child care workers, which you would think you would be a field where women would be at a premium and have certain, you know, maybe genetic advantages. Men, $15.21, black women, 21, the white men, black women, $12.41. Those numbers alone show you a disparity that just seems to me to be unforgivable. That's a lot to process. I know it's radio and numbers are hard on radio, but I hope the point is clear. No, no, no. I mean, the numbers are very, (laughs) that's the thing. The numbers are clear. Processing the impact of what this means, it's a lot. And I'm going back to, you know, we were talking a moment ago about about countries that that do have a lot more equality for their like genuine equality for their women and we're talking about you know iceland sweden and new zealand and the first thing i'm thinking of is yeah those are countries that actually take caregiving take parenting take mothering extremely seriously i mean i think sweden is where you know when you have a baby you get a baby box from the government that has all of the foundational things you need to take care of that baby you get the support you need for however it is you want to feed your baby it is, you know, we don't we don't have national leave po- paid parental leave policies. We don't have national health care policies. We and, and and it's those things that we have to have that conversation. We have, and even if we're trying to do things on a state by state basis, that's not going to move women forward in the truly fundamental way that we need to. You know, we have this bootstraps mentality in our country, and you cannot bootstrap your way into having everything you need to care for your families and to care for your children. And I think that we really need to move past that and understand that we are, our society will benefit tremendously if we give caregivers, if we give mothers the support that they need. Um, Absolutely. By the way, go ahead, Taifa. No, I was just going to say, just for the mere fact, when we did our initial analysis four years ago, it was looking at that pay disparity. Um, and if, if we said, and then based on our research and our data, if women were paid the same as men for the same job, it would add billions to our Georgia economy. So I think we need to start there. There's no reason why, you know, white men make 
uh, dollar and white women make 82 cents on the dollar. And then women of color, if they're black, native or or Latinx, make less than that um, going down the line. And so we've got to really figure out how to make sure that there's equity and pay for these occupations. And that is a huge policy uh, intention that our lawmakers who can control that should do. Uh, before we get to a break, Taifa, uh, in, in that mm-hmm. regard, um, uh, your office is looking at some legislation that you think could really help in, in, in this situation. HB 55, if you could give us just a couple of minutes on that, it would close, it, it, the intention is it would close salary gaps by barring salary history questions. What does that mean? And and who's the sponsor, and does that bill have any chance of getting anywhere in the legislature? Yeah, I forget who the sponsor is, but some of the women advocacy groups, like Women Working 9 to 5, have been a champion of that bill. This is just to allow women to have a level playing field when they come into the door of, of a potential job opportunity. Because women's salaries are typically lower and depressed, where they're coming in, uh, we don't want that to be a factor in them, their ability to, to negotiate for the same pay as men or even for a higher salary. So banning the salary question uh, in, in the employment process, again, gives women an equal chance to be able to negotiate equitably for jobs. And again, that's a um, low I gotta level get to a break. Uh, opportunity. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've got to get to our first break. I know everybody wants to talk, and you'll get your chance. But first, these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're talking about women and the pandemic on this edition of Political Rewind, but really talking about the larger concerns that women in the workplace, women in the home have dealt with for many decades that the pandemic in some ways is not only exacerbating, but just highlighting uh, uh, for all of us. We're joined by uh, Suba Berry, the president of Working Mother Media, Taifa Butler, the president and CEO of the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, and Representative Terry Anulowitz um, of Smyrna is basically the home of her legislative district. By the way, Terry Anulowitz, just a quick thing before we move on, uh, be careful. Amelia Brock is very proud of her Finnish heritage, and she wants to make sure you know the baby box is in Finland, not Sweden. Do not cross Amelia on her Finnish heritage, Terry. <laughs> I mean, no, no disparagement towards the Finns. You are a wonderful people. <laughs> and take care of their babies. Terry, <laughs> Terry let, me, let, let me actually keep the ball uh, with you for, for a moment here. Because here you are in the middle of the most intense period, except for the final few days of the legislative <laughs> session. Um, You have children at home. You're dealing with the pressures of your kids have been doing virtual learning, I suspect, for a good part of the pandemic. You're down at the Capitol. Start us off on a portion of this conversation about just what the pandemic has meant for women who have been trying to balance some form of work against having the ability to take care of kids in a whole new way with the pandemic shutting things down. Well, no, thank you. And I'll preface this with two things. One is that, you know, there's a term I heard that's that's pandemic fine. And I was like, I am pandemic fine in that, you know, my family is Mm -hmm. economically stable. We have, you know, our, my family is healthy. My parents and my in-laws have been able to get their vaccine. I mean, we are, we are pandemic fine. And also I have a teen and a tween, which is, I can't imagine what this is like for parents and caregivers of younger children. And, and I have healthy parents and in-laws so that, so that who are, you know, believe that there actually is a pandemic. So that helps also. So I have, a, I have a much better baseline than I think a lot of other people do going into this pandemic. But th- that said, you know, it is, yeah, it, 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 it's a lot. It, I remember talking to 
when I was on Political Rewind, the last time I was in the studio was in March 12th of 2020, and that's when everything was that, – that we in our family, we count that as sort of the last day of the before time. And I said to Greg Bluestein, he was on the show, I said, I am, I am ready to read a deep dive into how much of this is falling on women. And at that point, I was just thinking about, you know, having to make sure we had enough Clorox wipes to wipe down all the doorknobs and high-touch surfaces every night. Like, that was how, – how naive were we? And and now going into this, yeah, it is hard. I mean, I have, you know, friends and colleagues I know with, with young children, with little children, who they're having to sit next to them and try to do their actual professional job while they're monitoring their child's online learning. I mean, I, I don't think there's any parent you could talk to where if you don't say, you know, if you said the phrase missed assignments, you're just going to see this empty blank stare in their face, like the thousand-yard stare, because we all know we have all been dealing with missed assignments, even with kids who are the most motivated learners. It is, you know, the New York Times had an article that about the primal screen, and I think it summed it up so well. And again, these were people who were by and large coming from, you know, a place of privilege and that they were healthy and they had jobs and they had a partner who, you know, m many of them had a partner who had a job. But even in, in the best situation you can have going into the pandemic, it's still impossible. So when we talk about these low-wage workers, when we talk about these essential workers, these frontline workers, these retail workers, these grocery store workers, the gig economy workers, it is unfathomable how, how absolutely impossible this situation is without even then talking about the other, the other policy issues, whether it's broadband internet access for families in rural Georgia, whether it is, you know, transportation access, whether it is, you know, the food, the food desert issues that we have in Georgia. I mean, it is it's it's this exponential crisis that that we have. And Suba, we know from all of the studies um, and from anecdotal uh, reporting too that the burden for taking care of the home continues to fall primarily on women. Well, you know, there are a couple of things I wanted to add to this. The first one is long before this pandemic started women were actually always working a third shift. And that is whether or not you had children or not, you still worked a third shift. And that was, if you think of the first shift as work, second shift as home, the third shift was planning for everything from the <laughs> birthday parties to remembering to send out the gifts and cards to organizing everything to making sure there's, you know, the grocery lists are made, even if somebody else did the grocery shopping. So there was a third shift already. Think about the added burden on top of that that has come in on women. So I, I just want to sort of let you think about that a little bit. Then you, you, you add to this, you know, as you said, yes, with really young children that may, you know, either not be old enough to be going to school, then you have the teenagers who you think, yes, they're self-sufficient. You don't know if they're playing video games or whether they're actually doing their schoolwork. And how do you monitor that all the time? I saw some statistics that said working women are getting interrupted at least 15 times every hour, 15 times every hour when they have kids at home. And how do you get work done? Think about the mental issues and challenges. And I think that there is going to be two aftermaths of this pandemic. One is around physical health and one is around mental health. The mental health piece is going to be about that burden of having to carry it. I, I will tell you that I have never appreciated my commute time more than I have during this pandemic because I didn't have any. I walked 15 steps from my, where my desk is to where my kitchen is or my living room is. So, so it used to be that the hour I took to commute back and forth from New York was, was downtime for me. That was a me time, and I never appreciated that more. The second part is on physical health. Think about all of those things that haven't got addressed. You know, I am a six-time cancer survivor, and I will tell you that the, the organization that I work closely with, which is the Rutgers Cancer Center in New Jersey, uh, often says that they are waiting they are waiting for the aftermath of this pandemic mm. about all those people who didn't get screened, who didn't get caught early. And we are going to face that in the aftermath mm. of this pandemic. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's remarkable, Suba. And, and I want to just hearken on what we heard from our partners that surveyed women from all over the state of Georgia around this how COVID was impacting them and everywhere from the lack of high quality employment, the safety net in and of itself, 
uh, access to health care, how to pay their bills. So there was sort of the emergency recovery that many of these families were seeking. But much to Suba's point, I'm concerned that we are not going to respond in the proper way as a state, particularly with our budget and with our governmental services around behavioral health and health care access to make sure that women and women of color in particular can recover uh, equitably in this recovery um, with the pandemic. And so I feel, you know, as we've looked at this budget and we look at all the cuts that are in it around education and around health care, we are not going to respond well. Um, and so I would just say uh, from our standpoint, how we can continue to advocate and push for the policies that will help women, particularly caregivers, working women, uh, be able to reenter the workforce in a safe way that their children can be safe uh, in safe spaces. And again, we can tend to the, the health of physical and mental behavioral health for, for women and their families. I think that's hyper um, I think, I apologize for interrupting, no. Terry. Uh, I think mm -hmm. uh, Taifa makes an important point. The question is whether the will exists down at the Capitol among your colleagues to look at the kinds of issues she's talking about. Have you seen a group photo of my colleagues lately? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but it, it is the the General Assembly. There are more women than than and Georgia has more women than many other states have in the General Assembly. We have more people of color serving in the General Assembly than than many other states. But it is it is really hard when a lot of the people in the key decision making positions in the General Assembly are not necessarily those who are actually dealing hands on with these caregiving responsibilities. Um, the people in the the leadership positions, and again, I think that it's. I think that many of them are actually trying to have more empathy and understanding. And we do have there are some appropriations committee chairs in particular who are who who do really, I think, try to understand what is happening in the communities that these budget decisions are impacting the most. But it, but it is hard. I mean, it is. You know, there there are several mothers who serve down here in the general assembly who have very young children. And it is, you know, you, you see the analogy of like drinking from a fire hose coming down here, but, but everything you really do have, everything you do to balance just here, to serve down here is, is it's profound. And it really emphasizes what people are going through back home. And, and, I, and I do think we, we need to really do a much better job. You know, we've talked for so many years about generational poverty. And I think like what Taifa was saying and talking about I really like switching from, I mean, yeah, generational poverty, eliminating generational poverty, that should be the baseline. And wealth building, I think, is something that we should really aspire to and giving people, up, families, opportunities to build wealth. But there has been that record scratch moment of that with the pandemic, where we are very much back to square one in so many ways. You know, you're talking about all these, you know, the, the million slot, child care slots that no longer exist. I don't know how we're going to come back from that without real deliberate policy initiatives over the next several years. Um, so I, I want to, if I, if I may, uh, and you'll all, <laughs> uh, I think relate to this, whether personally or experiences you've dealt with as you, uh, look at this through your jobs or your friends, uh, the New York times, uh, did a piece, uh, the headline was 11 months, multiple breakdowns, one harrowing realization. They've got to get up and do it all again tomorrow. And the, the piece focuses on three women who are struggling through the pandemic. And uh, Decada Brown, 41, here's, here's her, her uh, capsule story. Decada Brown, 41, was in her local grocery store in Olney, Maryland, thinking back to a year ago when she was on stage in New York accepting an award for Working Mother of the Year. Her husband watched proudly from the crowd, texting photos to her, to her daughter, 11 and 15, Exactly one year later, Decatur was standing in the wine aisle, cell phone and keys in hand, contemplating whether she should begin smashing bottles. I was like, what's the worst thing that could happen if I just did this right now? Total frustration. Um, Mercedes Quintana wondered why on earth she ever thought cooking three separate breakfasts for her family was a good idea. Today she was at her home with a spatula in one hand, a computer in the other, making chocolate pancakes for her daughter, three black beans and toast for her husband, and a sweet potato mash for herself while trying to connect a Zoom call. But her headphones wouldn't sync. 
The beans were burning in the pan, and she says it's now 9.31 a.m. I'm frustrated and stressed out already. Those are sort of humorous, Suba, but they're not. They're real. Well, by the way, Decatur Brown, the uh, organization she was getting the award from was our organization. She was oh, a working for year <laughs> and was nominated by one of her, her company to come and receive that award. I mean, that really sort of sums up what women are experiencing. And I have to tell you, our survey, our latest survey said that women are considering leaving their jobs on a weekly, if not daily basis. And out of the ones surveyed, 35% of the women said that they are considering leaving their jobs on a regular basis because of the stress that they are under. Uh, It broke down 29% of white women compared to 36% of women of color. But let me tell you, there is a silver lining. The silver lining is the support you get from your immediate manager. There is a saying in the workplace, you don't leave your company, you leave your manager. You leave Mm. your manager. So when the manager is supportive, when the manager is consistently, it's not a matter of saying, hey, I'm going to allow you to work flexibly, because guess what? It used to be that working flexibly was really working from home. Now everybody's working from home. So flexibility actually takes on a new meaning. And that meaning is that it is allowing you to work at your pace when you can, as opposed to dictating how and when you do it. So I think that when you have managers show that consideration, all of a sudden, 89% versus 49% of the women are saying, you know what, I'll stay with my company. I will continue to work here. It makes such a huge impact on it. So I think companies should think about training their managers to understand how to be able to show empathy, perhaps be a little vulnerable themselves as it relates to their women employees, especially their working moms and working parents. Taifa, let me give you the last word before we've got to get our final break out of the way. Yeah, I I would just say that I I hope there's a couple of three-pronged approach I think that we really need to look at to recover from here is looking at the safety net. You know, again, women are in a hard place. We're already, I think our unemployment today is two times uh, what it was before the pandemic. So women are out of work um, and we've got to figure out how those who want to work can get back into the workforce. Um, and, and again, bolstering that safety net where they can get access to emergency cash, uh, food assistance and health care um, is, is one. And then the long term change of the system of how we look at how women are paid across these occupations uh, in terms of livable wages, uh, wage, raising the minimum wage is clearly one way to automatically help women uh, elevate their wages. Uh, when we did the report several years ago, I mentioned if women were just paid the same as men, we'd add 14 billion to our economy and it would cut poverty in half if women were paid the same. Um, and so there is significant ways that we can just do that by looking at pay. And then finally, the child care industry has to be bolstered and, and reformed in order to help those who work in child care be paid livable wages in addition to uh, the, the women who need to access those services. Um, so I, I think those are a couple of ways that we can really think about this equitable recovery long term, particularly for women, um, and that, that we hope lawmakers, as Terry said, are looking intentionally about policy interventions that can really help change the circumstances for women. Um, before we take our, our break, Taif, as long as you've had the last word, I think we should give you a little plug. You on, uh, I think, next Monday uh, at noon are going to be the speaker at the International Women's Forum in, in Georgia. Tell us just a little about that, and can people watch that? Is it going to be a virtual event? Yes, it's a virtual event hosted by the International Women's Forum Georgia chapter uh, celebrating International Women's Day. Uh, We will have several presentations throughout the day, and I will be giving a state of Georgia women (laughs) presentation. So this is a great precursor to that. (laughs) Okay, terrific, terrific. Let's get it'll be virtual. Yes. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and be back with more. We're back on Political Rewind talking about women in the home and in the workplace and the issues they struggle with, not only during the pandemic, 
but uh, throughout the history of working women in this country. Uh, I, I do want to make another quick announcement about an event coming up. Uh, you know, GPB does a number of community events every month, and they're doing two events that relate very specifically to the topic we're discussing right now. Um, on Wednesday, March 10th, they're going to do a tribute to the film Nine to Five, uh, which is the result, which really comes out of a true story. The organization called Nine to Five, working for women's empowerment in the workforce. And of course, Dolly Parton made it into a very, very famous uh, movie. And uh, you can get more information on that by going to gpb.org community. And then later in the month, there's going to be a civic dinner, Voices of Women, which you can also join uh, virtually. But go to gpb.org slash community to uh, get more information on uh, uh, those events. Um, we're down to the last couple of minutes with Taifa Butler, Suba Berry, and uh, Representative Terry Anulowitz. We should, I want one other quick promotion, Suba Berry. Working Mother uh, is a, you can, you can get it on the web. Uh, it, you do have, but you can also subscribe, right? I mean, there's free content, but subscription content. Have I got that right? Um, yes, you, you actually can go online to our website, and that will give you all the access you need in terms of guiding you to it. Um, but we also do a number of events during the course of the year. Uh, we have a huge event for multicultural women focusing on those specific challenges of what can be done to elevate, uh, you know, multicultural women in the workplace in July. So we have we will, we will absolutely, on our website, you will have access to all that. Okay. So uh, workingmother.com is the easiest yes, way to uh, get to, yeah. to the website. And, and Taifa, as long as we're doing a little promotion for people here, if um, listeners want to keep track of what's going on with the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, which is obviously one of the more important organizations looking at, at financial issues, budgetary matters in the, in the capital, uh, how do they do that? Oh, yes. Our website is www.gbpi.org, and our social handles are Georgia Bu GA Budget at one Twitter, where you can see us followed along with the legislature um, and link to all of our materials. All right. Uh, Terry Nolowitz, as we run out of time for today's show, first of all, let me say to all of you, thank you for a really important conversation. We need to do more talking about this very issue as things evolve. And I would love to invite all of you back again as the situation uh, c continues to develop. Terry Nolowitz, uh, you've got a pretty tough uh, week or so ahead at the Capitol. Are you up for it? Absolutely. I am hydrated. I am rested. I am ready. <laughs> All right. Uh, look, next week on the show, we'll be devoting an awful lot of time to talking about the legislature. We're uh, going to have any number of uh, Republican and Democratic legislators talking particularly about the election bills, which have become one of the most controversial issues I can think of in my time in covering uh, the state capital. That's it for us today and for this week. Uh, Amelia Brock, thank you particularly for your work on bringing together this show. Sam Burmistage, Jesse Neiswanger, good work from you. Everybody have a good weekend. Until I see you on Monday, take care, stay healthy, and please, please, please continue to wear a mask even if you've been vaccinated. Bye, everybody. <laughs>